From CBC Radio and Public Radio International, this is Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein. Part one of today's show, it's over. In the very beginning, when you first met her, the sound of her laugh made your heart leap up into your throat. It was a laugh that took your breath away. It made you feel like you were walking on stilts as tall as a house, and you decided very early on you needed to hear that laugh as much as you could, and you knew that you would do anything in your power to always keep that laugh going. So at night, you'd stay up in bed and write jokes for her in your head, jokes you would use the next day when you'd see her. And when you spoke these jokes, you would make sure the delivery of each one was clean and the punchline was not rushed. Each joke you told was designed to make her fall in love with you. These were jokes of love. This was the beginning of things, the courtship, and you were very gung-ho. Your impulse was to fling jokes at her, big and small, some to make her titter and others to make her chortle, all through the day and night. Surrounding yourself with the continuous sound of her sweet laughter, and along the way, she fell in love with you and your jokes. But then one day, a curious thing occurred. You were both watching TV over at her apartment when you suddenly realized just how cold her living room was. She was forever turning down the thermostat because she considered heat a foolish and expensive luxury. She preferred to wear large woolen sweaters, which was something you found charming and lovable. But with the thought of how cold you were came another thought, a sort of joke, and it came to you just like this. She was the abominable cheapskate. You were proud of that one. You knew she would find that clever, and you knew it would guarantee a laugh. But just as you were about to speak your joke, you hesitated. You thought that just maybe you had told her enough jokes that evening, and maybe you should just save it for another day. There would be other cold nights in her living room, and there was nothing wrong with a little budgeting. But from that evening. It only got worse. So you started to hoard your jokes, believing it was important to save a few for emergencies, a few for years down the road. In your mind, this passed as a kind of wisdom. It was wise to put a little something aside for a rainy day, a day when the jokes might run dry. You can never be too certain that your wit would last forever, and a secret stash of jokes to turn to in the event of a drought made good horse sense. So with this in mind, you began to even put aside material for your deathbed, because when you were close to the end, when your mind would no longer be on jokes, as the nurses huddled in the hall outside your hospital room making plans for your bed, as she leans in to wipe your forehead of its fever sweat, you will reach for an index card worn from the years in storage, and you will read to her in a faltering voice these words: "Either that wallpaper goes, or I do." To your ears, her laugh will be the sound of an angel wing cutting through the clouds. It will be the very last thing you'll ever hear on this earth, and you will know that all your saving and hoarding was worth it, and you will die satisfied that you had properly prepared for the end. Hello, Melissa. Hi. Hey. Oh, it's, hey. It's Jonathan. Can you hold on just one second? Sorry. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I'll let you go. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. Okay. Bye. Sorry. Hi. 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 Hi
Hi, I'm glad you called. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been really trying to get in touch with you. Yeah. You've been really hard to get a hold of. I've been, oh my God, I've just been swamped at work this week. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Jonathan, mm-hmm. um, I really don't know how to say this, and I don't think there's any sort of good way to say this, but I, I just don't think that uh, it's working between us, and I'm sure you probably feel it as well. Uh, uh no, I haven't. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of surprised. Really? Uh, I'm surprised that you're surprised. I don't think that we have a lot of passion, and in fact, I, I've been thinking about it, and I don't know why. I mean, I mean, I, I find you attractive, and I, I find you interesting, and I find you stimulating, and, but I think, I think it's, it might be because. You remind me too much of my brother. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the smell or if it's the way you talk or it's the way you walk or it's just a feeling I get. It's just a feeling I get, and I just I've been trying to shake it, but I don't think it's working. But I really hope that we can still be friends. Um, I've got another call. Can you hold on? When I'm in restaurants enjoying a wonderful meal. A feeling of dread sometimes creeps over me when I contemplate the imminence of the check. For this reason, I prefer cafeterias where you pay for your meal and then you are allowed to eat your meal with impunity. When I'm at music concerts, I can't help but always be thinking about the rush of people that will be swarming out at the end, and how maybe I should just leave a little earlier to avoid it. I listen to the music, anxious that each song I am hearing might be the very last. At any time, the performer might be about to say, "Thank you and good night." I anticipate the mad dash for the parking lot, the crowds of drunkards playing air guitar, the curtains coming down, the lights being turned back on, and the things that this light will reveal that I don't want to know. When we met, I mean, the thing that really struck struck me about you. It was actually your smile. Oh yeah. No, I'm serious. Yeah. I'm serious. You have a really, really amazing smile. And, and like, there's you, you, you know, you, there's you have a lot of amazing qualities. And I'm sure you're gonna find someone else. You will. You will. I don't know what to say. You know, you. We've had a great time together. We've had a great time, but it's just not. I'm not feeling it. I'm not. It's. At first, things seem great. You know, uh, you you know, you love to to dance. You know, and it's been very hard for me to find someone who loves dance as much as I do. Yeah. You know, and it was amazing at first that you loved. I, I mean, it was great. Every time I wanted to go out dancing, you you were there. Yeah, and I had you know, and I I took those hip hop dance classes at the Y every single Tuesday night after work for you. I know, but that well, you tried, you tried, but I mean, this is this is part of the problem. Is you look like you're like some kind of retarded monkey when you do it. Frankly. Listen, anyway, I don't like... You're a really, really great guy. It's just sometimes you get a bit... Uh, well, it's like touchy-feely or something. Like, I don't know. You just, you just, you touch a lot. And you're always like, if I get two feet away from you, you've got to, like, you stuck to me like a, like, static cling, like a bounce sheet. You know? I, uh, that party we were at? Yeah. You remember the, yeah. the, the house uh, yeah. party? A few weeks ago, 
Mm-hmm. Do you remember you you had like two drinks? And I'm sitting on a stool. It's a wobbly stool. You come, you insist on sitting on my lap, and you fall off. Do you even remember doing that? I remember you. You you know you made me feel fat. It wasn't because you're fat. It's not because you're fat. You're just drunk. Drunk and fat. Because what? Because I said you're asking for my knee. What that doesn't mean, fat. It means that it, it means that your ass, your ass is like uh, just doesn't fit on my knee. You know, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean you're fat. You're so paranoid. Everything I say gets dissected into something that I didn't mean. I thought that you liked our closeness. You know, that was one of the things that you that you didn't have in your other relationships. You're right. And at first it was great. But, you know, I mean, there's closeness and then there's you, you actually get in my face. When you talk, you're an extremely close talker. I'm sorry, but you get, like, right in my face. Well, it's intimacy. It's not intimacy. It's, 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 I don't know what the hell it is. You know, one time we were at a party and you were talking to me. You were talking so close to me, so close that I swear to God, a piece of food left your mouth and entered my mouth. It actually left your mouth and entered mine. I tasted it. It was like sausage. It was disgusting. Sometimes you didn't have anything to say to each other. You just didn't. It happened sometimes while leaving the theater, and sometimes it happened in restaurants. You would think, this is because we are not made for each other. When I find my true love, we will not be able to shut our mouths. We'll be hyperventilating with the hysterical need to constantly explain who we are, to make ourselves known to each other the way that we are only known to ourselves. We'll want to make sure that there is no crumb of who we are that should ever go lost, some little speck the other should fail to see and therefore fail to get the chance to love. But there were silences, empty spaces where you cannot think of a single thing to say. Silences that you worried might be depressing to other restaurant patrons. Our ending grew from the soil of these silences. If you listened very carefully, in the quiet, you could hear the ghostly sound of door slamming and feet walking away. You tried to drown out these sounds with words. Words like, How is your meal? Are you happy with the tenderloin? For dessert, would you like the baklava? And should I ask for an extra fork so that we can share? Hey, John. Hey, how you doing? Good. How you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm not doing... I'm, I'm not feeling too good. I, I think we got we got to talk a bit. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm not feeling too good. Well, what, what does that mean, you're not feeling too good? I, uh... I think... I think, uh... I think we got to take a little break take a little break from each other, I think. What are you talking about? What kind of break? I, uh... uh, You know, I I, I care about you a lot and stuff, but I I think I'm just doing damage to to myself and and to you too, and... I think maybe it's best if we just take some time apart. You know, like maybe a long time. You know, maybe like maybe we shouldn't really see each other anymore. Does this have to do with that whole baklava thing? The baklava thing is, I mean, like that, 
I mean, that's only like part and parcel. You know, because you know, I mean, they if they had, I would have picked it up. You know, I didn't mean to make you look like an idiot or anything. All they had was sherbet. Yeah, I know, but you always make me look like an idiot, and I, you know, and I told you baklava, and I don't. I mean, it's like if it's not that. But I can't. What am I going to run to a hundred different stores looking for baklava? Well, I would do that for you, you know. But that's, I mean, not that. That's important, right? Sure, it's just baklava, right? I like sherbet. You know, my my know. We, know my like family it. likes sherbet. We all like. I don't know why you have such a problem with sherbet. Of course, well, what do my problems matter? It's, you know, it's your family. It's, you, it's your sherbet, not my sherbet. I like baklava, you know. And you bring sherbet. I mean, like we're talking like one is like a a sweet confection with rose water, and the other is, a, is an ice treat. I mean, we're talking about two completely different things, you know. And and that's only that's only like food, you know. I mean, I mean, this extends into 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 to everything. Hello. Hi. How you How you doing? Pretty good. How, how was your day? Uh, it's been a little hard. Really? Yeah. A lot of thinking. Oh yeah. I mean, I've been thinking most. Actually, I've been thinking about um you. I I was ta- I was thinking about you also today. Oh really? What yeah. were you thinking? Well, I was you know I was just talking to my mom and telling her about how we were really looking forward to going to my uncle Jerry's wedding and all that stuff. Yeah. Everyone's looking forward to seeing you. Yeah. Yeah. You know you know I like your uncle Jerry a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, he's crazy about you. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. Um, I'm not going to be going to Uncle Jerry's wedding because I, 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 I'm not, I can't go because I want to break up with you. You, you, um, this is, I, I don't know what to say. It's probably better if you don't say anything, don't you think? You know, at least we've had some some pretty good times together, though. Uh, it's really, I really have to think about it. Like, can I, can I, I might have to call you back if you really want me to try to remember a good time that we had. I'm not even trying to, I'm, still, I'm not even trying to, like, be, be cruel right now. I mean, it's really hard to make a good time. Um, All right, my, my aunt Simi Shiva house. Oh, you, you said, uh, that's what you mean by a good time? Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I. You made me massage your feet the whole time. I had to sit there and massage your aunt's feet. The whole. The she heat. really liked you. I know. I know. I can't really believe liked that. And at the time, you said that you had. A, you said that you had a really good time. You said that. It was our first date. You took me there our first date. When you were nine years old, you had a football T-shirt with the number eleven on it. You loved this shirt and vowed to hold on to it for the next two years so that when you turned 11, you would have a T-shirt with your age on it. How old are you, people would ask, and all you would have to do was point to the front of your jersey. But one day you were at your cousin's house, and he asked you if the 11 on your shirt referred to your IQ. This cousin of yours was what septuagenarian relatives refer to as a Weisenheimer. You did not know what an IQ was, and you were not sure if an IQ of 11 was a good thing or a bad thing, so you did not say anything. Just answer, he said, yes or no. You would not answer, but he would not take your not answering as an answer, and so he persisted. Is that your IQ? It was now too late to admit that you did not know what an IQ was, and so the only thing you could do was continue in your silence. 
Answer me, he kept yelling. Is your IQ 11? All I have to do is keep my mouth shut, you think. You point at the front of your shirt. You honk a horn. You blow a whistle. You stomp your foot like a circus elephant, but you do not open your mouth to answer any of their questions, because questions are traps. Do you know what Bastillion is? No, I don't. Bastillion was a person or persons that would ride uh, behind a coach in England standing, and as they approached the village, they they blow a horn which would announce to the people inside the carriage that either the village or the chateau or whatever was in view. Is that neat? That is, yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking that, you know, in a way, you're my Bastillion. And, and, and I, I don't know really how to put this, but it's, you know, before something happens, you already tell me it's going to happen, and I think I have to, um, like, figure that out for myself. So I guess what I'm trying to say is um, I don't need a Bastillion in my life. It's like you and I. Yeah. Uh, like we're like a coach and we're going somewhere. Uh-huh. And we think we're going to the same place. And and when you when you see the destination, you automatically assume that's where I want to be. And and that and that's not necessarily where I want to be. Well, where 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 do you want to be? I think I want to be um, away from you. You know, like in movies, they say it's not about you. Yeah. I think it is. It's about me. I think so. It is about me. Yeah, I think so. And you know what's interesting? What? I thought this was going to be really hard for me to say, but it's not. I was going to say one day you'll look back and you'll laugh, but you won't laugh. You'll be bitter. I don't know. I don't know how you wrap these things up. For many years after their breakup, his biggest fear was that if someone were writing his biography a hundred years from now, they would write that for all intents and purposes, his life was pretty much over after she left him. Sure, he would add a few more accomplishments to his resume, but for the most part, he believed, her departure signaled a decades-long endgame that could be wrapped up in a three- or four-page chapter at the end of the book. When he said goodbye to her, he was actually saying hello to this final chapter. One cannot possibly know these things at the time, he would think, but one learns of them eventually. One learns of them each day, a little bit more, until one knows completely that one's life has all but ended. He will wake up from dreams about her with this burden, the sickening burden of his own yearning. He will walk downstairs to the kitchen to make coffee and a bagel, and as he performs these small tasks, he will feel like the strongest man in the world, a man who slings his yearning over his shoulder like a duffel bag and lumbers ahead, a man who bears the burden, too, of knowing that he is in the midst of his own epilogue. But for all of this knowing, and for all of his worrying about this knowing, he would learn with the passage of time that he knew nothing at all, that what he thought was an epilogue was really an introduction. Introduction.
in my early 30s, I was, I was in a relationship with a guy who I really thought would be a great father, but he was just a lousy boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, kids loved him, and he loved kids, but um, I wasn't as crazy about him <laughs> as they were. And I was doing that thing that a lot of women do in their 30s, where you sort of stick in a relationship for the kids that you actually haven't had yet. Yeah. But you're so um, so concerned at that age about the risks of ending a relationship and starting one. Um, you know, sort of so close to what everyone's telling you is like your best before date that, uh, you know, you make this mistake of sticking in a relationship for too long. Fortunately, we did break up. Mm. Um, but, you know, we kept in touch because we we really liked each other a lot better after we'd broken up. But uh, in November of 1999, um, you know, I... We had sex for the last time, and I can really remember the next morning just going, wow, like this is really over. Like I really, really felt it. I was 36 and thinking, wow, you know, if I really want to have kids, like I'm really going to have to get cracking. But it just wasn't there anymore, like that kind of desperation to have children, you know, and I'd been feeling this way for about a year, almost sort of like my biological clock was kind of like winding down or something. And that, um, that you know, oh, no, maybe I'm not going to have kids was, was shifting more and more to like, you know, maybe I won't have kids. Right. Like, and I could start to sort of see this life, you know, without kids, without so much responsibility, you know, being able to take risks and all kinds of stuff that that I was always so worried about back when I was always thinking about having kids. And um, at the same time, you know, I didn't want to be one of those women who was like childless by default. You know, and it kind of bothered me that, that it didn't really feel like a choice. And that's when I came across this group called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement which um, is actually pronounced vehement. It's very pretty. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now vehement is a little bit like a like a death cult, but not really, like a, a nicer sort of version. They're kind of like a radical environmentalist group who, who believe that, that the best thing for the planet is if we abstain right now from reproduction. No one's to have any more kids. Yeah, yeah. Everyone makes you know who joins this movement makes a decision that they're not going to have any more kids. So that the the planet will 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 become extinct of humans. Yes, I yes, see. and you know and be better off really. Um, you know they have slogans and bumper stickers that read you know thank you for not breeding and and live free and die out. these people and looking at it from a different perspective, um, you know, I started to, you know, feel like I was, I was kind of cleaning up the clutter in my, in my brain about uh, all this ambivalence over having children. You, you were finalizing something. I was finalizing something, you know, which, which was great because by around this time it was like December of 1999, so, you know, so here was this relationship that was finally over and the millennium was over and... You know, my my big plans to have kids, like, over, and, you know, the human species, like, over. And it gave you a sense of solace? 
a sense of solace, absolutely, you know, like some, you know, ending things, you know, it does give you a sense of solace sometimes, and, and a lot of things are ending here, and so, yeah, definitely, like I said, I felt like I was, I was clearing up a lot of clutter, you know, that didn't need to be there if I didn't want it to, and, you know, and that lasted for a few days, and then I started to get this kind of different feeling, which was more like a kind of queasy feeling that I'd never really felt it before, and um, which turns out to be like, have been the feeling of being pregnant, and I was like, you know, oh, wow, like I really wasn't expecting this at all. And then, so what, what was what was your feeling? Um. Yeah, my my very first instinct was actually happiness. Hmm. Then I started to think that 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 this weird sort of you know peaceful, totally centered feeling that I'd been having the week before maybe wasn't you know my new belief system. You know, maybe it was like my my new hormonal uh, makeup. And while at the time like you know not having a baby made so much sense to me suddenly you know having a baby um made more sense than i thought it would because certainly having a, a child as a single mother was never anything i ever planned mm -hmm. you know but it didn't seem so bad what was your day like today uh, it was a good day. Um, kind of, it was a funny day. Ben's about three and a half now. Um, he woke up and we had breakfast like we usually do. Um, and usually, you know, I bring him to daycare. So, so I told him it was time to get going for daycare. And and then he just got this really like you know flash of irritation. And he looked at me and said, "Mommy, you're driving me crazy." And I was like, "Oh my god." <laughs> Like, if he's going to be like this at three, what the hell is he going to be like, you know, as a teenager? Was that the first time he ever said that to you? Yeah, it was totally the first time, so, you know. But we did make it to daycare. Uh-huh. And um, he gave me a big hug, and, like, honestly, I'm not making this up. He said, Mommy, I love you. And, you know, so there's hope. <laughs> The voices you heard in part one of Wiretap were Melissa Kent, James Hurst, Howard Chakowitz, Starley Kine, Bert Kovit, and Juliet Waters.